Well, real quick, before we get going, it went out in the uh, announcement email, but wanted to relay, if you didn't get that, that uh, our own uh, Josh and Sonia Page had a little uh, Millie Joy page uh, this week, and so we, we want to pray for them and celebrate them. I, I texted her the day after and said, I heard about the news, so you're going to be a little late to work today, and she said, yes. Um, <clears throat> But anyway, she, um, they're doing great. Everybody's healthy, which is really exciting. And so uh, a, a meal train did go out for that. A lot of people have already signed up for it. Thank you. Um, if we have not, please sign up for that and get them. We'll, we'll get them taken care of for, for a few uh, weeks here. So let me take a minute and pray for, uh, for the pages and for little Millie Joy. Uh, Lord, we are so thankful that you uh, give us the gift of parenting and children, and, and, and what that means in this world. And Lord, we are excited for Josh, and for Sonia, and for Alder, and for little Millie Joy. Thank you that uh, she is healthy, and that uh, Sonia is healthy, and everybody's doing well. We just pray that you would raise that uh, little girl up, and, and into one who will be a, a servant of the King. Lord, we pray that you would protect them and uh, keep them safe and, and continue to be healthy over the coming weeks and months and years. And we just give you all the honor and the praise for them and for her. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So at the beginning of Matthew 13, uh, Jesus begins teaching large crowds of, in, in parables, which are a challenge for many, for them to understand. And his disciples come to him wondering why he is choosing to teach in parables rather than a more straightforward manner. Jesus tells them in verse 10, To you it has been given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. So these parables that Jesus is now teaching the crowds are all about the kingdom of heaven. Or Matthew, not exclusively, but mostly uses the term the kingdom of heaven. You might have heard the kingdom of God. Same, same idea there. Not only that, but these secrets about the kingdom, which no one knows yet or have been privy to until now, Jesus uh, proceeds to continue to teach some of these kingdom secrets to his disciples through these parables. And one of the secrets that Jesus conveys about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13, 31-32 says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, this is not our text. We don't have a time for a full exposition of the parable, but for our purposes, I want us to see the contrast of what is being spoken of and the manner in which it becomes a reality. Jesus uses kingdom language to his followers, specifically the kingdom of heaven. No doubt these disciples would have understood the kingdom of heaven, that phrase when they heard the kingdom of God, much in the way that we would understand it when it first catches our ear. Something like, you know, the kingdom of heaven, it must, it must be this great and powerful and glorious kingdom where God is king, ruling and reigning over everything. It is the place where all opposition to God's kingdom uh, is put down. The kingdom is where God is and where he rules and reigns alone and where he is worshipped. There's no more Rome to contend with. There's only God and his people and his rule. One cannot help but move there, gravitate towards that mentally when they hear that phrase. Now, if you happen to be one of those disciples sitting there listening to Jesus say this, you might get really excited, 
right? You might say the kingdom of heaven. All right, yes, absolutely. Sign me up. Let's get this kingdom going. Let's march to Rome, overthrow Caesar, put Jesus on the throne. You can sit and rule and reign. And yet, Jesus very clearly states in this parable that the birth of the kingdom of heaven does not seem to be inaugurated in this way. In fact, the kingdom of heaven seems to start off quite small, like a mustard seed. This mustard seed, however, over time grows into something much bigger and much greater. Not only that, but it seems to uh, be that seed that started so small becomes a home and a resting place for many. And as we turn to our passage in 2 Samuel 2 this morning, I want us to see the gravity of what is taking place in history. Within our text, for all intents and purposes, the mustard seed that Jesus talked about you know, a thousand years later is being planted and is beginning to sprout. You see, for the first time, Yahweh's chosen king visibly rules on earth. For those who have eyes to see, the kingdom of God becomes visible. The visible nature of this kingdom will become more and more and more manifest as we move through 2 Samuel. And then, of course, as you all are reading through the Old Testament, the ultimate culmination is in the person of Jesus Christ. But for our time this morning, I want us to notice uh, one defining particular trait of David and how it relates to participants in God's kingdom. Okay, so how would someone outside of God's kingdom view someone in the kingdom, and be able to see what they are like. And as we look at this passage in particular, I think we'll see it with great clarity through the life of David, or through the, the, these first actions of David. So, with that, 2 Samuel 2, starting in verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go up? And he said to Hebron, so David went up there, he and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household. They lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed him king of Judah. Now our passage starts with that phrase, after this, and so we should answer the question, after what? And if you'll remember a few weeks ago in 2 Samuel 1, the messenger came to David with news of Saul's death at Mount Gilboa, along with Saul's son David's, and David's dear friend Jonathan. David then mourns deeply the passing of God's anointed servant and pins a lament over the incident. And so after this is referring to these events. David has mourned, he's heard of the news, he has mourned the passing of God's anointed and his dear, dear friend and now he is ready to move to action. And so then David does something that shows his character and why one of the reasons I think that he is considered a man after God's own heart. What does David do? He inquires of the Lord. He inquires of the Lord. Don't miss the importance of this action. David has been anointed by Samuel long ago. He knew the throne was his now to have. Although he had many opportunities during the lifetime of Saul to take Saul's life and become king, David refused to take the life of the Lord's anointed. And now, however, Saul is dead. There is nothing stopping David from rightfully ascending to the throne of Israel. However, instead of assuming of God and assuming his own rights, David humbles himself and first inquires of the Lord. 
And if you will notice too, David does not specifically ask, shall I go be king now? No, he asks if it's time to leave Ziklag and go back to the cities of Judah. Should I go back to, to Judah? And so David probably went to Abiathar, the priest, uh, and inquired of the Lord, and he received the answers. Yes, go to the cities of Judah, specifically Hebron. Again, this passage is packed full of importance. We can't miss the importance of this answer either, right? Why did God tell David to go to Hebron? Well, Hebron was the most important city in Judah, right? And it was steeped in covenant history because the patriarchs were actually buried in Hebron. Genesis tells us that Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and Jacob and Leah were all buried in Hebron, right? So God's visible kingdom on earth was going to emerge out of the shadow of the patriarchs of the covenant, from which and in which God said in Genesis, 1, in Genesis 17 that I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And these, this history that was buried in Hebron literally out of the shadow of that emerges the kingship, the kingdom visible on earth. You see, way back in Genesis 12, when God called Abram out of Ur and told Abram of his great plan to bless the whole world through him, all of that seemed very unlikely. Abram must have thought, how could God do something so big out of something so small? In fact, Abram does ask something very similar, but it sounds more like this. God, how is this going to be possible? My wife and I are old and we're childless. A promise of something so big out of something so impossibly small. And yet, God did grow Abraham into a nation and gave him that nation the land that was promised to them. And now God has given them his visible king, physical king, to solidify that kingdom here on earth. And of course, David knows all of this history. Okay? David knows what God can do and promises to do, yet even knowing all of this, David's first instinct is to inquire of the Lord. He did not choose to rely on what he knew or what he was, what was, capable, what he was capable of, what was his right. Rather, he sought counsel from Yahweh. And my question for us this morning then is, of course, is our first instinct to seek counsel from the Lord? How many of us, whether big decisions, like becoming king, right, a few of us in here, right, how many of us, like big decisions, like becoming king or something very, very small, first we seek counsel from the Lord? How many of us choose to seek God's way rather than going forward in our own strength and wisdom and fortitude, only seeking God's wisdom when we're really stuck or we really mess something up, right? There's great humility in seeking counsel from the Lord first. David shows us a better way the way of the humble servant of Yahweh rather than the ambitious king. So after receiving his answer, David packs up his wives and his men and they leave Ziklag for the cities of Judah, particularly Hebron. And I think the text includes this part in particular of David's wives and men specifically to show that their time amongst the Philistines is over. It's finished for good. It is time for him to go be king. And so they go to Hebron and there the men of Judah take David and they do anoint him king. The question must be asked at this point, does this make David the king over all of Israel? Well, sort of. <laughs> yes and no. Uh, David is only king over Judah, particularly at this moment, and he does not have the allegiance of all of Israel yet, and this leads to the next part of our passage, verse 4, second half. 
When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. And now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. David is told about how the, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead took Saul and Jonathan's body and gave them a proper burial. And why is it important that it was these men in particular from Jabesh-Gilead that did this for Saul? Well, way back in, in 1 Samuel 11, there's this Ammonite guy named Nahash. We actually studied this uh, a couple years ago. And he went up and he besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And the men of Jabesh-Gilead said, make a treaty with us. And, they, and Nahash said, I will. I will make a treaty with you if you let me gouge out all of your right eyes so that I can bring disgrace to Israel. Right? And, and before Saul went off the rails, Saul heard about this and said, oh no. And so he sends for all of Israel to come against Nahash. And the men of, J, uh, of, Jabesh, or the, the men of Israel and Saul take, uh, take out Nahash so that the Jabesh Gilead is saved. And, and they remembered Saul's kindness to them, and they showed loyalty to that by taking their bodies and giving them a proper burial. And so David seeks to honor these men for their bravery, right? And in doing so, he also subtly asks for the same allegiance that they showed Saul to him, because now he is king over Judah. He is assuming his right as king. Now, this may not seem like a pivotal uh, story in the life of David and the kingdom, but I think it actually does reveal something to us about kingdom living. You see, David is the rightful king, but he does not stroll in with his army. He doesn't demand allegiance from Jabesh Gilead. Instead, he, he honors them. He treats them with respect. He requests their loyalty. He actually says, I will do good to you. I pray that God does good to you, and I also will do good to you. Jabesh Gilead is outside of the realm of Judah. Okay, it's about 80 miles north of Hebron on the east side of the Jordan. It is with, uh, outside of his territory. And, but David is going to now begin the, the quest to consolidate the kingdom of Israel, to, right, to, to expand his rule through the consolidation and loyalty of the people of Israel. But he does it by invitation and respect and humility. He's recognized the people of Jabesh-Gilead for their courage and integrity in the way they showed allegiance to Saul, and he's hoping the same from them for him. And I want us to consider then, as we think about how God is using us to extend his kingdom even now, okay? Until Christ returns to establish his, his kingdom on earth, the church is the, the visible expression and means of expanding his kingdom influence in the world. And so, friends, if you are a Christian in here this morning, I want us to consider something. We are a part of something so strong and so powerful that Jesus said even the gates of hell could not stand against it. We are in allegiance to the one who created the entire uh, cosmos with words. Okay? We sit under the authority of the one who will come and judge the entire world. And so when we seek to extend God's kingdom, do we approach it with humility or with arrogance? Right? Do we seek to persuade people into allegiance to God's kingdom through shame and guilt and pity? 
or through honor and respect and dignity, displaying the love of Christ to people who are also made in God's image? Do we act as people who have saved ourselves, or do we act as people who are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of our own doing? You see, friends, we, are, we should be actively seeking to expand God's kingdom, but it is through humbling ourselves and remembering the people who think and act and believe differently than we do are also people made in God's image who He longs to save. The grace given to us through Christ is also available for those who believe, would believe, and we do not know and do not decide who that will be. Therefore, we come to people humbly, speaking the truth in love and treating others with love and respect and dignity and honor because we never know what the Lord will do through us to grow His kingdom influence in the world. In 1915, a young 17-year-old man wrote these words, I believe in no religion. There is absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. He also said that he was angry at God for not existing and equally angry at Him with creating a world. He, this young man was struggling with uh, his beliefs, but he was hostile towards God and towards Christianity in particular. Fortunately, that did not stop a few other young men from, from his university from befriending this young angry man over their mutual love of literature, especially sagas and legends. Because of their friendship, these men began having long talks and walks through their college courtyards during which they would discuss, discuss such things as literature and God and religion. This went on for years, with many of these same men becoming professors at the same university. And one by one, the arguments that were obstacles to the faith for this young man were removed. And soon, after one particularly long walk and talk, which lasted until 3 a.m., this man became the most reluctant convert in England at 32 years old. Of course, this young man was none other than C.S. Lewis, who has gone on to become one of the most influential Christian writers of all time. Friends, we don't know who we are befriending, where they've come from, what their story is, what they believe, but remember, we believe in the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. Therefore, we are freed up to take that message forward to love those who are lost, trusting in its power alone to save, and allowing us to humble ourselves under it, knowing that it was the very gospel that saved us first. Now, we don't actually know what we don't, well, I said we don't actually receive an answer from the men of Jabesh Gilead as to whether they decide to be loyal to David or not in this text. And part of that has to do with what else was happening in Israel at the time. So let's go back to our text here, verse 8. But Abner... The son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him to Mahanaim, Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. He reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. And at the time that David was king of Hebron, in Hebron, over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Excuse me. We are now given a glimpse into what was going on elsewhere in Israel at this time. Saul the king is dead, and Abner, Saul's cousin and captain of his army, has taken initiative and establishes Saul's son, Ishbosheth, as king over Israel. In fact, the text says that Abner took, Abner took him and made him king over essentially the rest of Israel. Abner takes Ishbosheth to a place called Manahem, 
which, and makes him king. And this Manahem is east of the Jordan near Jabok and not far from Jabesh Gilead. And so as we begin to see this mustard seed planted, this kingdom in the mustard seed stages, there's already opposition to God's plan. All right, we will see this next week, but in chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, we learn that Abner knew better than to do what he was doing. Right? Abner knew that David was God's anointed, and God was transferring the kingship away from Saul's family to David. Abner was wrong in his attempt to forcefully establish a plan different than David sitting on the throne and ruling. Abner's actions were arrogant, selfish, and ultimately directly against God. It is therefore important for us to see the contrast here, okay? The main characteristics of the two kingdoms that are emerging. The first is being established by God through David, okay? King David first inquires of the Lord as to what he should do now after the death of Saul. Abner was arrogant and hasty and takes Ishbosheth and makes him king over Israel. Abner's actions show that somewhere in his mind he can thwart, even if for a time, the plans of God Almighty. In addition to this, David seeks to honor people who were faithful to Saul. We have seen David's zealousness for the Lord's anointed already in 2 Samuel 1 with the Amalekite sojourner. Here in chapter 2, though, David honors the ones who treated the Lord's anointed with reverence and faithfulness. David also does not demand allegiance. Rather, he conveys the news of the anointing, of his anointing, and promises to do good for them as he is now king. On the other hand, Abner, again, puts Ishbosheth over the rest of Israel. He does not reach out to Jabesh Gilead to honor them or any parts of the kingdom. He seems to assume that even in defeat, the kingdom will continue to go on and the people of Israel will be faithful to Saul's son. Now, whether that is likely or not, there's definitely a, a pridefulness and arrogance here to Abner's actions. And this leads us to the very point that I'm seeking to make this morning. There is a singular trait that drives David's actions through this transition. So if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. Humility, humility is a primary characteristic of citizens of God's kingdom. Humility is a primary characteristic of people of God's kingdom. Humility is the character trait that drives David to act the way he does, to inquire of the Lord, to treat people the way he treats them. David's humility is recognizing that he is but a servant of the true king, Yahweh, and it stands in contrast to the arrogance of Abner. And next week we will see that this, where this arrogance leads Abner, and spoiler alert, it's not good. So when we examine our passage in the newly crowned King David, the humility of his actions jump off the page, right? Humility is what draws people in. Humility is what draws David into submission to the greater authority. Friends, I don't know how many of you know prideful people. They're so fun to be around. They're just the best. I just love being looked down on by prideful people. I'm being sarcastic, guys. They're kind of the worst. <laughs> They're kind of the worst. But we also know humble people. He, people who just love to serve, who just love to take care of you, who just defers to you, who nothing seems to bother them, right? We, we, we love these people. We know these people. And I, I, I want us to notice that the humility of David, the first of God's chosen king, is similar. It, it, it reveals a secret of what the final and future of God's chosen 
kings will be like Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus first humbled himself by becoming a man. He was the, the, the commander of the army of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, the great warrior that made himself nothing and was born in the likeness of men in a feeding trough in a no-name town in uh, Israel. From there, he lived out his life and ministry, constantly inquiring of the Lord, seeking direction and guidance from the Spirit, and in constant opposition to his ministry. He treated people with respect and dignity by caring for the sick and hurting around him and serving those near to him. And although he could have demanded allegiance to his kingdom, he instead offered it as a free gift, right? Take my yoke upon you. And finally, in Philippians, uh, Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, which is to say the death of a criminal. Even in the face of extreme opposition, Jesus remained humble and resolved and obedient to God. Friends, humility is displayed no greater than in the life of Jesus Christ, the great and final king of God's kingdom. And so I want us to leave us this morning with one question and one challenge. First, the question, would you say your life is characterized by humility? There you go, Stuart. Bam. Stuart Smith, characterized by humility. All of you guys, though. <laughs> is your life characterized by, hum by humility? As we strive for godliness, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, are we striving to be humble servants of the king? Or are our lives characterized by pride and false power and taking rather than giving? Right, we want to reflect our king, and our king is humble. His kingdom was planted as a mustard seed that will ultimately grow to reign alone in power where all nations will come and worship him, but not yet. For now, we must remember to be humble and let outsiders see humility as our defining characteristic. And now you may say, well, what about love? What about love? Well, let me answer the question with a question. What makes it possible to love our enemies? or to love those who persecute us, or to love those who think differently than we do or believe differently than we do? What does it take for us to die to ourselves and our desires and our wishes and live by doing the good works of God through faith? It takes humility. Humility allows us to love because humility takes our eyes off of ourself and enables us to put them onto God and to others. Are we characterized by humility? So then my challenge to us is practical. I want to warn you, though, it's going to take some humility. I want you to ask a close friend or family member. This is a real challenge, by the way. This isn't one of those, like, cute, like, oh, cool, thanks, pastor application. No, no. I want you to ask a close friend or family member who you love and trust to point out a blind spot in your life that is not characterized by humility. One blind spot where you might be characterized by arrogance or pride rather than humility. And this isn't for your neighbor, okay? This isn't like, well, well, you're characterized by this. No, no, we just listen, okay? One blind spot where you might be characterized a little bit more by pride and arrogance than humility. And then I want you to pray with and stay accountable to that person regarding that area. Not for like three hours or three days or even three weeks, like three months or three years, because guess what? Pride is a, a strong warrior. He's not stronger than the Holy Spirit to put sin to death in your life, but pride is no joke. He fights hard. And so I want us to, to strive to that, to put sin to death and to grow in humility in the place where we are currently prideful. Sounds simple enough, right? 
uh, as I often say, it's not particularly complex. It's just hard. It's just hard. And we need the Spirit to strengthen us and to change us as we strive to grow in faith and be characterized by humility so that we can love with the love of Christ to those around us, right? And, it, it, and, and that's what we are called to do, to live differently. The things that we are striving for are different than the things that the world is striving for, and that takes humility because guess what? We want what we want, and we want to do what we want to do. And humility allows us to go, I do want what I want, but I know <laughs> that it doesn't please God. It doesn't honor God when what I want is antithetical to what He wants, when it's different from what He wants. So that's what we want to strive for. So let me pray for us, uh, and then we'll turn to communion. Father, help us. We need Your Spirit to convict us and to change us. We need Your Spirit to point out areas in our life where we are not characterized by humility. They may be many, but Father, we know that You want Your people to be humble servants of your kingdom. So help us to want that as well, that we may glorify you and please you in all that we do. Thank you for King David and his example of humility for us, even thousands of years later. And thank you for Jesus, whose life was characterized by the greatest of humility, and whose death and resurrection allows us to be transformed and forgiven when we fail. Help us, Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as we turn, if you're serving, uh, please uh, come down and, and, and we'll pass out the, the bread and the juice together. And, and this time, you know, last, last week, of course, we celebrated the resurrection. And that's the one Sunday, as David mentioned, it's the one Sunday year that we don't celebrate communion. But all the other times, we do. And it's because we want to, we want to have it ever in front of us, that the Lord, Jesus, was was bodies was broken and his blood was spilled because we're prideful, because we're not humble, because we're sinful. And yet, because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and him raising from the grave, we can be forgiven. As far as the east is from the, is from the west, so far as our transgressions removed from us, right? This is all because of the death and resurrection of Christ. So let us think on that humility. Let us think on that reality for us. Uh, as they hand out the elements. Just hold it, and then I'll come back. I'll read, and we'll take it together.